I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, college football fans across the nation and around the world. And uh, those of you coming out uh, from COVID quarantine, uh, good luck. As a matter of fact, I'm down in Texas right now, down in my hometown of Lufkin, Texas, hotel room waiting to go see my mom again. Uh, she's had some tough times, but we haven't, my brother and I haven't been able to see her for a couple of months. And, uh, and we've gotten some special permission to see her in a, uh, in a, uh, the Pinecrest uh, residential community. So I'm headed there. That's a little inside baseball for me, but uh, bottom line is a uh, interesting time we're going through ladies and gentlemen in the world of sports as well as everywhere else with what's gone on uh, in the world in terms of race relations, uh, African-American, uh, African-Americans, once again, uh, very upset with their plight in life. And uh, in my opinion, have a, a lot, have a right to be for all kinds of reasons. Uh, but then at the same time, Ohio State has reopened the Woody Hayes Athletic Center to its football players to uh, start training again in very small groups. Uh, that's the first time since the March that they've been allowed in the Woody Hayes Athletic Center started this week, started on Monday. Our intrepid reporter, uh, Boston, you know him as Austin Ward, uh, is, was on the scene as the Ohio State players showed up for the first time this week. Pretty interesting scene, as he'll get into with us uh, in a few minutes. But before we do that, I've got a fairly lengthy interview I've done with Larry James, local attorney uh, of, of, of great repute. He's gone through uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of feathers in his life. And there's an irony in a relationship between uh, Larry James and I, which we'll get to in the middle of the interview. But the bottom line was he was, he was the attorney who uh, represented, I thought in a, in a good way, the, uh, the athletes who got involved in the, in the tough situation back in 2010 and 2011 with Tattoo Gate. He'll go through some of that with you and what he went through and, uh, and basically sort of the miscarriage of justice more than anything else uh, that saw Jim Trussell step down as the Ohio State football coach and probably the miscarriage of justice that saw uh, Urban Meyer have to sit out three games of a suspension uh, at the beginning of 2018 season. So uh, he was uh, involved in, in those situations. So it's a very interesting interview, and, and stay tuned for Austin Ward after that. Uh, but with no further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here's my interview with Larry James. And like, like I promised, ladies and gentlemen, I'm back with Larry James, um, a young man I have admired for a while, and uh, we have some coinky-dink in our lives. It goes way back. I'll get to that in a moment. But uh, Larry James, welcome to the Tim May Podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Wish there were better times. Yeah, no kidding. I want to get right into that real quick before I talk about the coinky-dink in our lives, which I think is pretty major. But uh, uh, Larry, you represent uh, your general counsel for the, the National Fraternal Order of Police. Uh, this is an interesting time. Uh, you know, you work, you've worked with minority groups uh, too, in your background, and and uh, I don't know where. Just give me some kind of feel for what's going through your mind right now as we kind of 
uh, battle through this, uh, well, I call it George Floyd was sort of the match that set it off. You know, it wasn't the, uh, the gasoline. The gasoline had been building for a while, but uh, uh, just what are your thoughts right now? Well, just kind of a quick background. I've been general counsel of the National Fraternal Order of Police since 2001, uh, and we represent um, uh, police officers all throughout the country. The FOP has 351,000 law enforcement officers. I've also been safety director in Columbus, Ohio, overseeing police and fire department. Uh, there we hire, fire, train, discipline. Uh, I've also prosecuted internal affairs. Uh, I've, I'm currently also uh, counsel to the local um, Urban League. And in another life, I was also counsel to the NAACP. So hmm. I've been all around it. Um, obviously, from uh, Columbus, Ohio's standpoint, I've been very active in the Black community over the years, particularly as it relates to the arts. Uh, the King Arts Center, which we started in 87, which I was there to do the build out in the Lincoln Theater in 09 and was 10 years president of that organization. So you get in the thick of uh, race relationship, politics, uh, poverty issue. My wife um, started uh, years ago the Center for Healthy Families, which is a poverty initiative that deals with teen pregnancy. And 15 years ago, I uh, gave birth along with Don Vickers, the African-American Leadership Academy that's now in its 15th year. So I am that mutt that has been poured into by a lot of different interest groups. So where do we go from here? You know, as I, as I was talking about on my last podcast uh, with Austin Ward, uh, uh, you know, I've been I've been I've been watching this my entire life, race relations, and it seems like we're back to 1968, 69 all over again with all these things happening, including the pandemic. And as I said, including putting man back into space, you know, America, you know, back then we were going to the moon. Now we're just getting back into space. And and yet there's you know what I mean? I'm, and that's that's a trivial thing compared to what we're talking about. But uh, but it is kind of coincidence, you know, uh, that we're back to school. Not square one, but uh, we're definitely not where we thought we'd be 50 years later, are we? Well, I think sometimes the closer we get to the answer, the more outrageous there's any distance that's left. I would say we're a long way from solving our problems, but I would say it's kind of like the EPA cleanup. That last 15 to 10% becomes the most painful. We look at a situation that... Uh, the police department is secondary to the underlying issues of poverty, education, crime, adequate housing, adequate health care. And, you know, the police department uh, by default over the years has been forced into being all things to all people. Yeah. It's either equipped, funded, trained to do those type of things. If you look at the report out of the Washington Post, and the police shootings from 2015 to current, I won't conclude what the report says. You know, people can go to that and look at it, and you'll see the difference between those infractions between the minority community and those with the majority community. And if you get down in the weeds, um, it's, it's very informative and very educational. These issues are very emotional, volatile, so it makes for an awful situation to find a solution when everybody is screaming at each other and everyone's uh, speaking a foreign language. 
Larry, when you when you hear groups, you know, in in the Minneapolis City Council talking about defunding the police and or uh, doing away with the police in Minneapolis, as it you know as it turns out, I mean you know, and like I said, you're the general counsel for the National Fraternal Order of Police. I mean, what what just goes to your mind? Uh, can can you imagine society without policemen? You know, I don't. The Guardian has a pretty good article. Um, I don't know if it came out yesterday or this morning, but if you Google the Guardian, it kind of gives you a, a narrative of what defunding uh, police means in the broader intellectual policy standpoint. What they're trying to say is they would like to reallocate some funds to other issues that need addressing. Now, right. But if you talk about defunding, dismantling, that that's not going to happen. I mean, yeah. that will be reversed in a heartbeat because we just can't afford that sort of mindset. I mean, you, I, I, that's incomprehensible. Yeah, I, I, you know, uh, there are all kinds of reasons, as you pointed out earlier, why there is uh, scorn and strife out there. You know, that builds up, and uh, and we could go into all of that uh, in in minutia. But bottom line is, I wanted to ask you before I move into why it's so interesting, our backgrounds, you and me, uh, uh, do you think there is, do you think we get out of this morass? I mean, uh, like you said, the last 10% might be the toughest part. It's kind of like climbing Everest, you know, that's where the air gets the thinnest. You know, that, that's where the patience gets the thinnest. Do, do, do you see, do you see us climbing out of this morass? I think each jurisdiction is going to have a different challenge. Um, I think in Columbus, um, we've had a pretty um, agreeable journey uh, in, in between the various communities and our elected official and our civic leaders. Um, you know, Chicago, New York, uh, the other major metropolitan areas are going to be a lot more difficult. But the bottom line, Tim, is we have to. We don't have a choice because the America as we know it, the America that we love, we have to get back to. I think the good sign about this, people seem to be sensitized uh, to the reality. But in this pandemic, you know, our churches are closed down. So where do people turn to find some sort of comfort that will allow them to inter intersect with each other in a harmonious civic uh, uh, mindedness? And um, I think we're going to get there. It may take us a month to get to that. The pandemic is going to create its own problems, but bottom line is we have to. We're sitting at lunch, uh, and as, as as I said before, you came on here. You know, you're you've done a lot of things, worn a lot of hats in your life, especially as an attorney. And uh, you know, you represented the Buckeye Five. No, I'm not going to call them that. You represented though, you know, Terrell Pryor uh, and some of those other fellows when they were going through their NCAA. Yes. Uh, it is funny. We'll get to that in a minute, Larry, but it is funny that a lot of that stuff that you looked into and helped defend them for uh, maybe a year from now, they'll be able to do no problem. <laughs> right. But right. Uh, yeah, it's funny how things change, but we're sitting at lunch. You, you invited me to lunch. We're sitting at lunch and you said something to me, well, Tim, so where are you from? And I go, well, you know, I'm from Texas, you know, but originally I'm from Demopolis, Alabama. And I swear you were in mid-bite, you know, like you were in mid-bite. You go, you're kidding. 
Let's let everybody know. I was born and raised in born and raised my first eleven years in Demopolis, Alabama, West Alabama. Uh, U.S. Highway 80 was uh, about uh, 20, 20 yards from my house. We watched the Freedom Riders go by in 1964 on our uh, highway. You were born in Elyria, Ohio, Ohio, but yet, where, where were you? Uh, where did you spend a lot of your formative years, Larry? In Demopolis, Alabama. So uh, from. Wait, let me get back to that. Isn't that kind of queer? Do you remember that moment? You know, when we're sitting there eating. Absolutely, I said. Well, you. Yeah, you said you would have no idea. You 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 won't know where where we're talking about. And I, yeah. I said, well, you know, no, seriously, you know, tell me where you were. And you said Demopolis, Alabama, and I said Demopolis High and U.S. Jones High. Those yes. two schools were about two blocks from each other yes. as, the, as the crow flies. And one was the all-white school. And at that time, U.S. Jones was the all-colored school. And, and, and U.S. Jones was K through 12th grade. Um, the thing that also about Demopolis in the South is there weren't zoning laws that divided a community. So you had these two schools, two or three blocks from each other, uh, the wealthy people lived right around the corner from us. We had one of those shotgun shanty uh, uh, homes. Um, and at that time, for black folks, uh, you had three options. You could be a teacher, you could be a uh, preacher, or you could be a domestic ship for domestic, or you worked, you worked the fields. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, was seg- it was old Jim Crow, and it's, 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 uh, as we knew it, um, during that time period, it gave birth to George Wallace, um, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. And so as we were sitting there, it's amazing you had you and I about the same age who through those first years you grew up, you know, uh, blocks apart. Yes. Oh, yeah. But, you know. Yeah, how did you end up in Demopolis? Explain to people how you ended up in Demopolis. Because well, um, usually, you know, uh, African Americans were headed the other direction. Yeah, <laughs> back then. Well, we so my grandparents were sharecroppers, and um, my mom uh, had moved north. Uh, she ended up having me as a single parent back in those days. So I was sent south to live with my grandparents. And up until probably around 11, like you, uh, I stayed there pretty much all the time. And then uh, at about seventh grade, I'd go back and forth up until ninth grade every summer. But staying with them, and the thing you understood, uh, being from the South, the rural South during that time period, if you didn't grow it, you didn't catch it, you didn't kill it, you didn't clean it, you didn't eat. You didn't eat, yeah. We yeah. had no, no yeah. access to medical. Uh, it had to be something extraordinary. Um, the um, theaters were segregated. White folks went downstairs. We went upstairs. Wait a minute. There, um, were labels. there was only one theater. It was the Marino Theater, right? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And, you know, we, uh, we all walked to school. Uh, there was no public transportation that got you any place. So, all the housing patterns, for the most part, were very close to the schools. So, you know, in the South, the communities were close, but they respected their distance. In the North, they were far apart, and they enjoyed their distance. Yes, I, I think that's a great way of putting it. You know, you know, it's funny. Bill Moyers, you remember Bill Moyers? Absolutely. Uh, he did a he did a 
a show many, many years ago, several decades ago, called Marshall, Texas, Marshall, Texas. That's what he named it. And it was like you and I were sitting here and we're reminiscing about the same town that you grew up in back in the 60s. And your, your side of town, so to speak, was different from my side of town, but we hardly ever ran into each other. Correct. But, but what was interesting was, the, I don't, wouldn't call it a melting pot, but the interesting thing was on Friday nights when Demopolis High School played, all the white people would be in the stadium watching the game. Remember, they, I forget, right. it's Cedar Street or whatever it was. Uh, they're the big, you know, the stadium. And then on, then when U.S. Jones, uh, Jones High School had its games, well, excuse me, the whites would be in the game and then the uh, African-Americans would be on the fence watching from the outside. Yeah, and we, just traded, up, yeah we just traded, we traded fence posts. Yeah. I mean, it was, and it was crazy because we always wanted to see some live sports, you know, and it was like, man, this is, I just remember back then it was so weird. And I, you know, and I, I, often after you and I had that discussion, when we first discovered we grew up in the same hometown, the same little town, I've often wondered, like, my mom took us down, um, you know, there were scales drugs down there and stuff like that, and they got rid of their soda fountain after a while because right. they didn't want to have integration of their soda fountain. But I remember a couple of times we went downtown and saw marches, you know, two, four, six, eight, we want to integrate. Right. And, and it was like the uh, African-Americans were marching through town and we were watching. It was almost like a parade kind of thing. There wasn't any, uh, you know, any strife going on, but y'all were getting your point. You might've been in that parade for all I know, you know, that march. And it's well, just, I had, yeah, I had uncles and, and aunts who were in that. I think the thing that was amazing about the South and people cringe at this reality, everyone knew their place. Yeah. You know, that was the thing until the 60 brought about kind of the freedom movement and the, you know, the reality that you wanted to vote, you wanted a better life. Um, the textbooks uh, then all got handed down secondhand and, you know, U.S. Jones kids, if they had books, you know, they were three generation old books. Um, but I think the thing that probably what, what gave me so much, let's say, uh, drive, I mean, the one thing my grandmother taught me, because she used to get up at 4.30 in the morning, she'd cook a big breakfast, she'd go to the field, she'd work all day, she would come home and she'd cook for the family. And I watched this lady and I was just amazed at how, yeah. uh, how hard she worked. And so she would tell me, this will, this will not always be your place in life. Do not ever settle. So I watched them and I just, I, I came to the conclusion that I'm going to do something and you got to kill me to stop me. Wow. Yeah, I was going to say, one of, one of us had drive and the other guy was me. <laughs> but uh, it was funny, not funny, haha, but um, you know, watching a retrospective with Clarence Thomas uh, the other night, and uh, he literally had almost a similar background as you did, you know, a young mother, and uh, he ends up going to live with his grandmother and grandfather. His grandfather was the greatest influence on his life in many ways, was extremely strict, you know, and that was in Jim Crow, uh, Georgia. Uh, Jim Crow law, you know, more raised, whatever you want to call it, Georgia. And, uh, and it was just, it gave him sort of a, I think, a broader range of 
what was going on in the world, how he could work to maybe help change things without just going, you know, becoming a radical about it. We all know, you know, I'll, I'll never forget the, my first year in junior high, in uh, not junior college, junior college, not junior high, my first year in junior college in Angelina College and here in Lufkin, where I am right now, I'm in a hotel room here because I'm visiting my mom uh, down here in Lufkin, Texas, where I moved to from uh, Demopolis. Uh, they asked me, uh, the teacher asked us to write a uh, quick essay on our, who were our heroes growing up? And I said, basically, I said, my two men growing up in West Alabama in the early 1960s, my two main heroes were Joe Namath and Martin Luther King Jr. Right. And, and, you know, and I said, the reason was, comma, you had to be there, you know. And seriously, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was about as brave and gutsy a man, along with a deep thinker, that's ever come along. You agree, Larry? Absolutely. I think there were two things um, I remember about my childhood growing up. Number one, you know, at that time, what my grandparents did is they bought these encyclopedias. You remember those encyclopedias? Oh, yeah. We got the same thing. World book. Yeah. Yeah. So we had those and that became my library. And, you know, because we, you know, when, when the, when the uh, harvest season come, they would close down school and we'd all, all have to go work in the fields. Uh, but King came along and, and, you know, we didn't all understand what he was saying and what it all meant because it was so new. Oh, yeah. You had to, you had to adjust um, that. I mean, as you speak now, the other guy that you talk about, Joe Willie, which was so unique to a character playing at Alabama in football. I mean, he was a guy that kind of uh, gravitated to James Brown and black music. Yeah. The other thing about the South, Randy coming out there, blues, country, R&B, and things of that sort. So that whole movement that Dr. King brought about, also you start to see a social movement as well. And I think, uh, you know, Joe, when he talked, you know, if you remember that Sports Illustrated article, and he was asked the question, who's your favorite uh, musician artist? He said, James Brown. Yeah, yeah. You exactly. probably didn't know that. Yeah, that's the point. He came, he came from Pennsylvania, you know, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. His best friends growing up, you know, were African-American. I mean, uh, you know, it's just a different – and yet he's playing for Bear Bryant. You know, it's funny because the uh, head football coach at uh, Demopolis, Demopolis High School, not U.S. Jones, back then uh, when I was growing up for a while was uh, Jack Rutledge. He ended up going to – uh, being in essence Bear Bryant's right hand man, you know, a few years later he got on his staff and then was Bear Bryant's right hand man all the way through the pretty much the rest of his career, which is uh, pretty interesting. Uh, but uh, it's just, uh, Larry, as you look back on it now, it is funny how far you and I have come, at least, right? I mean, Absolutely. you and I are good friends. Uh, you know, I I respect the the heck out of you and what you what you have meant and what you've done through your life, and but especially after getting to know you during that whole NCAA stuff, uh, during the, the last years of the, of the Jim Trussell era. Right. And I'm just wondering, you know, did, uh, as you look back on that now, I brought it up a while ago, I'm just kind of jumping ahead now, but, uh, right. uh, you know, is it still mind boggling to you, the effort you and your firm put into looking into things and how the NCAA in the final analysis was basically not interested <laughs> In some of the right, facts you right. uncovered, et cetera? 
Right. When you look at Tattoo Gate, because that's what it all came out of, uh, and then there were other things such as whether they were compensated for work they did not perform or paid at a rate that they did not, we documented. So I knew that, for instance, the football players had been accused of selling their memorabilia. And you'll remember I had the parents compile the memorabilia, take a newspaper with the day's date on it, take a photograph of it, put a notebook together with all those photographs for each player and send it and that killed that issue. Then yeah. when you look at Terrell Pryor's uh, car incident and whether he was afforded any benefits beyond what the normal public was, we put that all the rest. Um, and I think that at the time, um, you remember the Sports Illustrated article came out that said they had sold their memorabilia and they had gotten tattoos for free. And three of the players that they had named did not have tattoos on their body. So, yeah. I mean, the injustice of it all. And I think that's the thing you remember growing up that stays with you, that drove you to do, to dig deep, to try to make sure that those folks uh, were treated fairly. Devere Posey was the most outrageous situation. And they got him on a... Uh, penny ante allegation that he was compensated at a higher rate. And the fact was that DeVere was working along union workers, which the contract required all employees working for that company, working side by side would be paid at the same rate. And I think, you, you know, Trussell was such a wonderful guy. Uh, Gordon Gee was president at the time. Uh, Gene Smith was the athletic director and Chris Culley. And again, it's about relationships. And those relationships really allowed me to be the voice of OSU and do the things we needed to do. And yes. I think you learn from those days growing up where we did is that irrespective of the challenge, you learn to respect and rely on people. And you were very helpful um, to that. I will always apologize to, to you because you call and you said, we'll, we'll boom here and be reinstated. And I think it was yeah. a Nebraska game. Yeah. And I said, absolutely. You know, not everything we had, and they just did some penny ante stuff that made him sit out another game. But I think you'll recall, because you were there, and I knew the NCA was going to release their report. And I said to you, I said, look, I have all my information ready to go. I just need the press outlets. And you, one of your other reporters, you said, Larry, can you work with this guy or this person on that story? And that night when they released their finding, I released my report. Yeah. So, um, and I think the plain dealer ended up running an article three years, where are they today? Which the NCAA in their own way apologized. Not like the NFL just did, not no. that degree of apology, but they did in their own way. Uh, apologies. But, you know, I, I thank you for the reporting you did. You wanted to get it right. You listened. You looked at the information and it, it helped. Meanwhile, though, you know, three years later, like you said, the NCAA kind of admitted A, B and C. Meanwhile, Jim Trussell is forced out of his job. Uh, you know, some players missed some incredibly valuable time, et cetera, could have 
you know, what, you know, mainly they got stained more than anything else. And, uh, and like I said, a year from now, even the stuff that was alleged, a lot of the stuff that was alleged is going to be legal. I mean, absolutely. At least, well, what you, is at least progress being made along that front, Larry? Yes. You remember the Atlantic uh, magazine ran a cover and it had the black ball players on it in indentured servitude yeah. and things of that sort. And you remember I got crucified by the national media for alleging that these individuals uh, somehow were, um, you know, just not being compensated, right? That same sort of uh, argument. But, you know, as we look back on our history, time heals, time heals, time cures our problems if people are about the right thing. So I think that as we look back, and I always say this, you know, remember this, Tim, the last time George Wallace ran for governor of Alabama, he got 90% of the black vote. Yeah. How does that happen? And changed his colors, man. I mean, the <laughs> expression. I mean, you that's know, it. he was for getting elected no matter what it took. That's what, that's what George Wallace was about. We can get into politicians, you know, deeply here if you want to, but I don't want to, but that, that's what, you know, we remember he was governor and then Lurleen, his wife was governor. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was like almost like a, a monarchy going on there. And it was, it was crazy, but uh, people can change, you know, that's the, the main thing. And I think it's what we've seen, you know, like I've said, Larry, and I don't mean this uh, derogatorily, but, you know, if, if integration had been what it should have been all along, it, we might not have ever heard of Eddie Robinson or he, Eddie Robinson might've been the head coach at Louisiana state instead of Grambling, you know, I mean, but uh, Eddie Robinson you know, and Grambling benefited greatly by the fact that Alabama Texas right on across the line there in the South weren't taking um, African-American ball players and, and the Northern schools were taking some, but not as many as they should have been. Right. I mean, well, you uh, just, yeah, you look at the history of the black quarterback, yeah, uh, and you look at the evolution, and that has been that, um, that that bargaining chip. The one thing that I mean, you know, you look at the historically black colleges that we have today; they still have their place because yeah. I still think that there is a different sort of education for black children that goes on different than they do at most majority school. And you, my wife graduated from North Carolina A and T and has some of the most productive. But I think as we look at society today and where we are, and, you know, and, I, and, and I, I say you've got to have diversity in every sense. And one of the examples I use on that is, you know, you've got Clarence Thomas on one end and you have Thurgood Marshall on the other. So that's that diversity of thinking within the black community. I think what we've lost sight of, the ability to respect those differences in every sense of it. And I think everything we do in life, if we have that respect, whether we're talking about you as a reporter and how you reported during those difficult times that really impacted people's life, such as a Jim Trussell, and you always did it the right way. You always yeah. wanted to go and get the facts. So I think if we as a society have that same approach, you know, I said to um, our FOP members, and our black clergy, I said, look, you remember at the time and not so long ago, and maybe even sometimes today, when we hear something tragic that happens and we pray that they're white. So when the situation came out of Buffalo, 
on top of everything else. Before we saw any of the photographs, he said, please, God, don't let him be black. Because if that had happened, you know, that broad brush was going to then swipe cops even more so. And so I say today that we're doing to the police what other people did to us back in the day. Yeah. I, uh, you know, a guy like you, it's, it, I, I, you ought to be one of the great Walendas because you're kind of walking a tightrope there a little bit. You know, I mean, from the standpoint of, uh, you know, that 99, probably 99.9% of, of cops are good guys. I mean, Absolutely. maybe not 99%. That's a big, that's a, that's a lot. But, uh, but you know how they're good guys, but it, it, it only takes – it only takes one or bad, one or two bad apples to really spoil the bunch, and that's a cliche. And the reason it's cliche is because it's true. Uh, can, can the FOP? I mean, can the FOP? Can it? Can it uh, fix? Uh, can it fix what's what's happened? Can it? Can it remedy? I think, I think we. So when body cameras came out, what we were charged with is creating a model policy for body cameras, so that officers could be comfortable around the, the country and using those. We're going to try to come up with a model policy for citizen review. But I think not all incidents indicate that the police officer is a bad cop. You know, I always say, let's look at the record. So let's take Buffalo, for instance. Let's assume that that little push, uh, I don't know the history of this individual, but in a fraction of a second, that individual may have had a stellar career for X number of years. Yeah. And on that particular day, on that particular interaction, something went wrong. Yeah. And, you know, because it's a gasoline environment, everybody's painted. He has to be or she has to be a, a bad cop or uh, have evil motives or something like that. That's not always the case. So I agree with you that, you know, having been safety director over police and fire and, you know, having to discipline and determine whether you're going to terminate someone is you begin to see the best of the officers. And I always said this, if you're malicious or evil, or you intend to do harm, you have a problem. If it's a lack of judgment within this situation, and there is no you know, drastic consequence of it, you're gonna be okay. And you should. And you gotta remember this too, in, in, the, in the corporate world, if you have a bad employee and you retain that employee, that's negligent retention. That falls back on management. Yeah, yeah. I, it's just interesting, uh, you know, because anybody can have a bad day. Anybody can have a bad moment uh, when you consider, you know, you always look at it from the side, you know, and believe me, the protesters have something <laughs> to beef about. I totally believe that, you know. Uh, 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 we, we get into that in another article. I mean, another uh, article, another uh, conversation. But uh, but the flip side of it is, you always have to remember the cops are, are human beings also, and uh, everybody has their limit. Everybody has their hot button. Uh, and like you said, one and but one moment's one moment's uh, slip up by a policeman, and it it stains the whole group. One moment slip up by a protester, and it's. Uh, you know, moving on to the next protester. So right. that that's what we're in. I, I'll tell you what, real quick before we go, I, I don't know what your people, I didn't understand though the tactic uh, of not letting people just march through the streets, but but maybe being more uh, concerned about the 
property that was being destroyed. I don't, I don't understand that tactic, you know, and uh, like you said, you were, you were law director, you know, for a while. Well, what, what, what is the thinking there of just letting people have their protest, but, you know, maybe lining the uh, sidewalks instead of I lining think, the streets? I think it's, it's training and preparation or lack of training and preparation. I think those uh, jurisdictions that had been at four, and I'll tell you an example when I had when I was safety director. One of the things I was looking at certain zip codes, particularly that were segregated, and because of the crime, the seniors and the youth were prisoners in their own house. So I said to my command staff, I want to saturate uh, the neighborhood with officers uh, to bring, take that neighborhood back. And they said, director, that's a bad idea. People don't want us here. I said, that's crazy talk. What do you need? And they said, we need to be invited in. So I called brother Danel Mohammed, who's head of the Nation of Islam here. And I've known Danel a long time. And I said, I want to have a press conference and I want you on the podium and I want you to invite the police in. And he goes, done. So we hold the press conference. He invites, you know, the police in, we want you in, we want our neighborhood back. You tell us officers what you need. So I said to him, I said, now, why don't we do a dress rehearsal? Why don't we do some practice? I don't want to, you know, pick up the, the paper tomorrow morning or flip on the TV and you've got, you know, cars lined up, trunks open, you've got dogs sniffing. I don't want you to do that. Director, we got it. We got it. I'm at home. 11 o'clock news on a Friday night. Sure enough, cars are lined up, <laughs> hoods open, dogs are sniffing. I'm going to get my butt kicked. Sunday night, the ACLU and some of the local folks, um, uh, progressive, are on TVN, uh, on the talk show, and they're crucifying me. So, Tim, I got in my car. I drove to the radio station while the interview was going on. I walked in. I said, I'm here. And they start blasting me. And I said, you know, you're absolutely right. And I deserve to be blasted. I should have done the proper training. I should have done the proper preparation. I didn't. Things got out of hand. It won't happen again. And you saw that evolution over yeah. the weekend in Columbus. Oh, That's yeah. what it yeah. takes. Hey, last thing, I mean, because, uh, you know, and pardon me for like going from one side to the other, to the other side to the other. Uh, that's, you know, my brain is working a thousand miles an hour. Like I said, we could go on forever here. As you know, you and I have done that before. <laughs> uh, but uh, as we look now and look back to like 1964, you and I are both sitting there in Demopolis, Alabama. Now we're sitting here in, uh, in uh, 2020, you know, the world. Let's play like I'm in, in Columbus right now, even though I'm not right now uh, down in Texas. But uh, I see a predominantly African-American football roster at Ohio State, and it's like that at most every school, including Alabama, you know, uh, Auburn, uh, right on down the line, Georgia. Uh, is and, and, and you see the, the folks that a lot of people are leaning to right now in the African-American community, or at least the fellows that are stepping up, are Malcolm Jenkins, uh, Michael Thomas, uh, African-American players of repute who are not letting this slide by. We all know about Colin Kaepernick and, uh, and you know, and his situation uh, four years ago when he took a knee with Brian Day as his quarterback coach at San Francisco. The only thing that bothered me about Colin Kaepernick was later seeing him with a uh, Fidel Castro shirt on. I go, I'm not sure that's where you want to go, right? 
Right. But the That's point is, uh, how we like you said a while ago, we have made made a tremendous amount of progress compared to fifty six years ago. What I'm talking about, where uh, and sports has driven a lot of the narrative. I mean, at least of getting the the point out there. Do you agree? Absolutely, because the voice the voice of leadership. Um, in this civic, corporate, and to some degree political world, uh, the LeBron James, uh, what um, 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 Mike did, you know, with his $100 million, uh, Michael Jordan, um, Steph Curry, uh, all of those individuals, I think the athletes are being better prepared to be a complete citizen today what Urban instituted on Real Life Wednesdays really speaks volumes to preparing these young men for adult life, civic engagement, responsibilities. For those who don't know what Real Life Wednesday is, uh, what um, Urban created at Ohio State was he would bring in certain corporate leaders in to talk to the football team about um, life's experiences, life skills, um, you know, he'd give them all computers. You have to have a checking account, banking account, things of that sort. I went in to talk to him about uh, civic engagement and staying away from criminal, paying your parking tickets and all those sort of things. So I think the athletes today seem to be more holistic because they've had to work with teams. They've had to discipline work together to get a product to achieve something. And few of leaders today have those kind of joint collective experiences to make them or prepare them for life after college, life after football, and also to be that good corporate citizen. Do you applaud Urban? For, I mean, Urban, I, I had him on last week. We were talking about real life Wednesdays and his, as he called his live life Wednesdays. You know, when he, remember in 2016, he had the whole segment in there for four four or five days where they talked about why it was important for them to vote, the history of the vote, right. history of the fight for civil rights and the right to vote. Right. He didn't have to do that, but basically he, he required his, his players not only to register to vote, some of them for the first time, but to vote, you know, Absolutely. and uh, show me proof, you know, almost, you know, uh, you didn't have to do any of this. What, what did, What's, what's the insight there you get of an Urban Meyer well, when you, you know, hear that? And I, I've worked with Urban, too, and we went through the Zach Smith thing together. Um, so yeah. I have a little bit uh, uh, of intimacy in knowing him uh, very well. I just think that's the way Urban Meyer is built. I mean, he is a guy that wants his players to understand, accept responsibility, assume responsibility, and be that good participatory citizen. Um, and I think that is a part of the success that he had during that time period. He was coach uh, like no other. Uh, and he used his relationships to bring people in. He would secure summer jobs for them. He would secure internships for those players. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's super. But, no, but like you said, he followed up. He followed through. And, and now but, – but he also wanted them – to be leaders, you know, in one form or fashion. I remember Jim Truman was a former, I texted you that note last night, uh, Jim Truman, former owner of a 
true sports uh, race team, but also founded Red Roof Ends. And he was just this dynamic dude, man. And his big line was lead, follow, or get the hell out of the way, you know? Exactly. And, and, uh, uh, and that's what Urban is urging his, I mean, and I think you're seeing them step up and like Gene Smith is, you know, obviously is African-American and where he's from where he's come to where he is now and stuff. But their, their, their big line is don't get in the, in these fellas way, you know, don't misguide them, but let them have, let them have their lead, you know, let them, let them go in, in these times because people are for one, for, for good or bad, people do look to their sports heroes as much as anything else for some leadership in these times, right? And we, and I think society adjusts. So the Carlin, the Colin Kaepernick situation, and you watch Roger Goodell end up apologizing. And the question is, you know, can we afford to remain silent? And so I think that when we talk about uh, preparing someone for life, as Urban has with real life Lindsay's, and I think Gene, as athletic director, really weighed in strong on that uh, and putting people around him, them who can really help them. Um, and I think that that's just wonderful. But back to that training and preparation, whether it's police officers, whether it's football players, you don't see coming out of the program like you used to a problem program with problem athletes. And I think that Real Life Wednesday is becoming a model around the country, and not just for football, but for basketball. Urban Solicited got a million-dollar contribution to expand it to the other sports. Yeah, crazy. I mean, it, it works. And like I, like I told Urban, we, he was on with me last week, uh, you know, they're recruiting a different level of athlete and person now but you know i mean obviously four and five stars you almost got to be for them to look at you but i i think you agree with me it just seems like the level of person has has improved in the football program do you agree with that yeah well they're recruiting they're recruiting you know a different athlete today too yeah so they're beginning to compete with the stanfords and others and they had a couple of those situations but i think still it's about what you pour into the program what you pour into the athletes what you pour into the police department. If you tell people the rules, you're consistent, you're fair, people will respond accordingly. Yeah. Well, uh, Larry James, uh, you know, I'm going to have you on, uh, you know, again and again, because I always like to tap whatever resources I have that are beneficial, not only to them, but to me. <laughs> I <laughs> and, appreciate uh, that. You know, you and I have known each other now for at least 10 years and, uh, I've enjoyed almost every minute of it, except maybe calling you late at night a few times, but, uh, and I'm sure vice versa. And by the way, you know, uh, I, I can't leave without, without asking you about this. Uh, in the final analysis, what, why did Urban get three games, in your opinion? Why did he get a, get a three-game suspension? You and I were talking before, during, and after that whole situation. Uh, now Michael Drake has stepped aside or he's stepping aside. A new president's coming on board. I'm not surprised by that. But uh, what happened there, Larry? You know, that's a little bit inside baseball. Yeah, but just let, let people know as much as you can about the curveball, and then we'll move I on. I think, you know, so it was November. It was a Sunday morning, November 15th. Uh, I get up, Donna's leaving, and I get a text from Urban, and he says, are you in town? And I said, yeah. So um, 
he calls and goes, I will be there. So Sunday morning, about 740, Urban's at my house with Zach Smith. He goes, let me tell you, if he did anything, he's gone. He's out of here. Uh, without exception. He said, can you find out what, what's what? So I talked yeah. to the detectives. I talked to uh, her lawyer. I talked to Zach's lawyer, um, looked at all the court filings. And the question was whether he had done anything that he was accused of. And without exception from the court records and the investigative group, I gave my calendar and my bills, although I, I, you know, it had all the days, who I talked to, what we had found. And as Urban said, do you think I would hire and maintain a person of domestic violence? You know, that was the question. And the answer was absolutely not. And there was no documentation. But the national media, ESPN, which you know doesn't love Ohio State at all. Um, yeah, crazy. I mean, you know, there was a decision as to who was going to control this decision, whether it was the president of the university or whether it was a board of trustees. And I think it reached a point, a boiling point, as you remember how long that day went on. And I think the decision they started about eight o'clock in the morning concluded about yeah. 10 o'clock at night. Um, and that was just a compromise uh, of a bad decision. Uh, Larry, I appreciate it. You gave me some inside, gave people some inside baseball there without, uh, they got to peek inside the clubhouse, but not go into the training room. So right. appreciate right. it, Larry. Thank we're going to have you much. again, man. You, you, you and I, you and I go back a long way and I, I, I truly appreciate your input here. And, uh, and it's, uh, and keep walking that tightrope, my man, because yeah. this is the time when you need a Wallenda up there. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And I appreciate, uh, equally appreciate the relationship and the work that you've done and you continue to do. And I always enjoy hearing from you. Ladies and gentlemen, Larry James. Thank you very much, Larry James. Thank you. Be well. You too. Bye-bye. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Ladies and gentlemen, enjoyed that uh, interview with Larry James, and uh, attorney extraordinaire. And, and as promised, now I've got Boston Ward on. Uh, you know him as Boston Ward. Uh, by the way, uh, Boston, I just keep saying that because that one, that one guy says he doesn't like the fact that I keep doing that. He said, that stick is getting old. I go, man, you got to understand, Tim May, that the older it gets, the better it gets, right? That's right. Hey, sometimes uh, you have to keep sticking with a joke until it seems too repetitive, and then it becomes funny again. So yeah, that's like David Letterman. That's the David Letterman <laughs> formula. By the way, let me get, let me get this suitably ready for an interview with go. you. Uh, <laughs> hey, Boston. We're trying something uh, new, like on location. Yeah. Hey, as we record this, uh, it's Monday morning, late Monday morning, and uh, the Buckeyes have been reporting for the first time since March back to the Woody A's Athletic Center. And just yep. give us kind of a just a rough, succinct uh idea of what it was like watching these players uh, go in and out of the building. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't – there wasn't a lot to really – for us to see outside. 
Uh, but a number of those guys, they all wore their masks in. They got to their cars. They, you know, they had their workout gear. And some of them would stop and chat briefly, say, hey, you can't see it, but I'm smiling. And that was, you know, a couple of the offensive linemen said that uh, early on. And it was – you could tell that it, how much it meant to them to be back around their teammates and back looking out. Look, there are some tremendous restrictions on them and everything, the protocol that goes through just to be working out. But they all you – know, nobody was complaining. You know, they're walking out with huge boxes full of uh, food and their workout gear for the next day and you know, cases of Gatorade. Um, they – they are clearly happy to be back. Yeah, you know, uh, give some people some sense of uh, the restrictions. You know, as you and I both, we read the, all the memos and stuff like yeah. that. But in essence, they won't be practicing football for a while, right? I mean, this is all about conditioning uh, for the most part. Uh, groups of no larger than nine plus an instructor from uh, the Mickey Marathi staff, at yep. least to begin with, correct? Yeah, and – the players didn't do any interviews, but some did stop to chat a little bit. We talked to Nicholas Petit Frere, giving me, giving me an opportunity to practice that name again uh, here in the offseason. And he, you know, said, did you have to practice or work out with the mask on? I said, no. You know, what was it like going from station to station? You know, everybody cleaning their own stuff afterwards. They've got, you know, people floating around to make sure that the Woody uh, is perfectly sanitized. And Quint Temple walked out this morning, said this has got to be the cleanest building in America. And <laughs> you know how they like to compete around here. They, they – they want this to be a place that, you know, they don't want to have anything go wrong. They want to do everything they can to support the players, and, and they're doing that. But, um, you know, it's – you'd kind of see them go in shifts. Everybody had to schedule it. Nine players would show up and mostly be by position. You know, the offensive line was out. They stood out in the doorway, waited for their time to go get the, you know, temperature checks and get into the facility, grab some Gatorade, uh, go in, do their workout. And it was maybe an hour and a half, two hours that the guys get to go in there. They come out of another door. It's, it's really – a lot of thought seemed to go into this and that makes a lot of sense because they, you know, you want to do it right, but you know, it's a different process for them and it's new, but uh, nobody, you know, seemed to complain or put out by it because they all just wanted to be back doing football and they want to play in September. Yeah. By the way, as we recorded some down in Texas, Lufkin, Texas, the high today is supposed to be 96. I think it was 98 yesterday or something crazy. People wonder why, Tim, why didn't you, why didn't, when you moved to Ohio, why didn't you move back to Texas? This is exactly why, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> in high 90s the rest of the week, you know, and uh, that was not for me, man. Even though I grew up in it, you know, I wore cowboy boots every day of my life there for many years. And, but uh, when you don't, when you're not used to it, it really hits you right in the face. I want to ask you, though, uh, uh, Boston, do you get the sense now, uh, are you more peaked, uh, P-I-Q-U-E-D, that there's going to be a football season of some sort this year. Yeah, I think I think this is a positive step in the right direction, Tim. But I don't. There are still a lot of them to go. Uh, like I said, when we're talking about nine or ten people, you can't. That's not even a full offensive formation. There's, you know, there's they're not hitting each other yet. And um, we're, if we're talking about them trying to get an acclimation period and training camp by the middle of July that's a pretty significant leap from four or five weeks from now to go from what they're doing right now to that. So, um, yeah, I, I, I continue to think that there is that progress being made to make sure that that's going to happen. But, you know, there's a lot of work that still has to be done before then. And um, ever, all these tests have to stay right. You can't have any more spikes elsewhere. And a lot of things don't even depend on how clean this building is. It depends on how clean other buildings around the big 10 in the country are. So, um, we, that's why we still keep saying when you and I talk that 
July is really that point where they have to make decisions. And I think that these voluntary workouts and how teams are handling that are going to be a key piece of information for that process. Yeah, you know, it's funny when, uh, like a month ago when, uh, or so, it might not have been, it might have just seemed like a month ago when uh, Gene Smith and, and the university announced that they were going to open the Woody uh, on June the 8th for uh, guys to return, for the local guys to return. We're talking about like 45, maybe 50 guys, but I think you guys are finding out almost everybody is there now, right? Everybody's yeah, back in see- town. Right off the bat, you know, like one of the guys that we talked about being out in California that had a good spot to work out, Wyatt Davis. We saw him first and foremost. You know, yeah. Trey Trace Sermon is here. Uh, you know, Sean Wade, all these guys from around the country, they're back. And I think that's another sign of how much they badly they want to be back. But also a key part of this that maybe changed from the initial, initial you know, discussion was they weren't going to test people for COVID, but now the whole team got that before they could work out. So if you want that process to start at any point, uh, where you're going to have to come back, take a test, and then quarantine potentially until, you know, they know that you've got a negative or two negatives. Well, you need to be back for that. And giving them the option to do so, it appears that all of them took it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, the late Hayden Fry would have said, what a surprise. Right. Now, yeah. It is a big-time major college football program, and these guys know they're – no, this could be a special season once again, and they want to be part of it and want to get as much work in as possible. You know, that's just obvious, right? Yep. And, look, these are high achievers that Ohio State recruits. They're not looking for the option to stay home on their couch and play Fortnite. They want to be in this <laughs> building. They will do anything that, that's asked of them uh, because they are, you know, they want to win a national championship. They want to get to the NFL. They want to do the, They love playing football as well. Those three things are all – pretty key details and and look I mean I'm happy just to be outside of the house uh you you know I've taken every opportunity I could to play golf and get out when I can do things safe and social distance but none of us want to be want to be home and by ourselves and and in quarantine so you know you got to do things to get back to normal that's that's what I'll do that's what you'll do that's what we'll all do I was going to say, I played golf three times last week because uh, 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 I had been helping babysit my grandson. You know, I wasn't going to just stick my wife with it. Plus, I enjoyed it. But I'd been doing that for two months, and uh, I don't play much on weekends. <laughs> but uh, uh, but the bottom line was, yeah, I mean, but you don't want to be crazy. You want to be stupid about it, you know. I mean, uh, this COVID-19 thing could come back, you know, big, big time strong, and some people think it might based on – what went on in the country uh, the last uh, the last week, you know, with the uh, with the unrest, the protests and stuff, and some of which got way out of hand, um, in maybe not to the fault of the people who were protesting, but the people who were using a protest for ulterior motives. But I've already been down that road a couple times. Real, real quick, last yeah. thing, uh, uh, two last things. Number one, did anybody mention that during conversations today about what's going on in the country from a from a uh, uh, from a racial standpoint, uh, yeah. protest standpoint. And then number two, are, have you heard, I haven't heard that there are any players have, have tested positive for COVID-19. Is there any update along that line? Yeah, there are. First thing, nobody really talked about that movement today uh, publicly. They, the, the Ohio State Sports Information staff was trying its best to just keep people moving and not have us do many uh, interviews or any video stuff out here. So, uh, nobody spoke out. Nobody had any, any shirts or anything like that for the movement that I saw at this point. These workouts are voluntary, right? They're all voluntary, yep. Okay, uh, go ahead. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> I see what you're doing there. 
Yeah. These, uh, but I think the other part of that is Tim that this is their first opportunity really to be back together as a team, even if it's piecemeal. I think I, they're not done protesting and speaking out. I think yeah. this, you'll see more of that as they get back around each other. Um, and as far as any any negative tests, um, Ohio State's not going to do that. They're, they're sort of treating that like an injury report. Um, you and I obviously are, are going to continue to report and find out if we can any information about that. Uh, everybody, you know, so far we haven't noticed any key absences or heard anything about guys missing time. Um, obviously, that's a fluid situation to change every day, and, and we haven't seen, you know, all 85 scholarship players, um, you know, back for voluntary workouts at this point. So that's something that you and I will obviously continue to, to work on and monitor, but I don't think at this point – if Ohio State had had, you know, some, some failed tests, I wonder if they might have held off a little bit on bringing them back together. So I think it's probably – uh, an encouraging sign for them on day one that, you know, that's not been the topic of conversation. I know that, you know, Alabama continued, Oklahoma State continued, and they have protocols in place for if a player tests positive, but I don't believe that that at this point has happened. I got you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's Boston. Boston, you know him as Austin Ward. And uh, with the update, uh, as Ohio State dips its toe back into the water of getting ready huh, for the 2020 season. And, uh, you know, we come to the end of another uh, Tim May podcast. I want to thank Larry James uh, for coming on, for spending almost an hour with me. He was gracious with his time. I hope he doesn't bill me. He is an attorney, after all. <laughs> and uh, in Boston, you know him as Austin Ward, is uh, one of my favorite people out there. And uh, uh, Letterman Rowe keeps doing a fantastic job, both on the scoop side of things <laughs> and, uh, on the, and on the just a general reportage. But uh, Boston, th- thank you again, my man. No problem, man. We'll see you soon. You got it. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, next week we'll have another episode of the Tim May Podcast. Until then, thanks for watching and thanks for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work, limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.